Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and it is my birthday. You might notice that from the episode title. The reality is I could not come up with something incisive to call the episode, so I decided to name it Happy Birthday to Me. By the time you uh, hear this on Monday, March 26th, I will be officially 37 years old. Uh, what's that? Am I? No. So Mike asked if I was worried if someone was going to steal my identity, and the answer to that is hell no. They'd probably be doing me a favor, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know what I've got planned for... We're recording this on Sunday, so technically tomorrow. I don't know what I have planned for my birthday tomorrow. I have a, a trial in the afternoon, so I'll be focused on that after we wrap up shop here. Um, but happy birthday to me. That's the gist of it. If you would like to, uh, tweet me birthday greetings, I will look forward to them. Um, how does it feel? Eh, I'll put it like this. I understand why men have midlife crises. You know, I'm not having one myself, but like, I feel old now in a way that I never did before. And you got to think my, my, my formative years as a kid, I was always looking forward to being an adult because then I would have the flexibility to go out whenever I wanted and eat ice cream whenever I wanted and order pizza whenever I wanted. And then I dropped out of college. So my late teen, early 20 birthdays uh, were spent trying to make sure that I could keep a roof over my head because I didn't have a college degree trying to pay bills. Got back into school when I was, how old was I, 24 Yeah, so came back at 24, finally finished my education by the time I was 31, and then for the past six years, I've been running a law firm. So it's like, I've never been envious of other people. That's just not who I am. But at the same time, I thought by the time I hit, you know, early 30s, certainly by mid 30s, I would be married, raising a family, having a house, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, that's not materialized yet. I'm still living in the same apartment I was living in nine years ago when I started law school. I am still dating the same girl who I love to death, but I can't even afford a wedding ring to propose to her. You know what I mean? And the thought of having another child at this point, especially with the cost of it all, my God, I mean, it's going to give me an aneurysm. So I'm, I'm happy to have seen another year, you know, but at the same time, the, uh, you know, any kids I have, by the time they're in college, I'm going to be in my 60s, and that kind of freaks me out. So the uh, that's that's how it is. I'm going to find some way to celebrate, and then I'm promptly going to go back to uh, building the law firm and podcast empire that we were working on here at Fiscal Mall. Uh, a couple podcast notes before we get started. Uh, first, for our podcast itself, we have reduced the bit rate to 128 kilobits per second. Hopefully you won't notice any substantive difference in the sound, but I've been uh, told by people on Twitter that we were recording at too high a fidelity and we had massive file sizes because of it. I talked to Mike. Mike kind of cringed a little bit because he likes how it sounds, uh, but he has agreed to reduce the bitrate for us slightly, so you might notice that. And there are two podcasts that I want you to listen to, uh, Victor Marks, who runs the Apple Insider podcast, uh, he and I talked last week. Their uh, their episode was on Friday regarding geofence warrants. Now, I was going to include that story 
in this week's criminal justice fuckery. But because I talked about it with him so much, I'm not going to talk about it here. I want you to go download his podcast. Uh, it's Apple Insider. It's you know basically Apple Insider for a long time has been like a news and rumor site for Apple aficionados, as I was. I mean, I used to work for Apple. I started with them back in 1999. Uh, so I was a regular. Prior to working for Apple, I was a regular at the website. While I was working at Apple, I was a regular at the website. And then after I left Apple, because I dropped out of college, uh, still went to the website. So I didn't even know they had a podcast. And it's awesome to find out that the guy who runs it actually lives in Raleigh. He's probably about 30 minutes from me. And uh, he had me on. So download that one. And uh, Tom Bridge, who runs the Mac Admins podcast, also happens to be another Apple-centric podcast, just FYI. Uh, we actually get name-checked. He mentions the Fiskimal podcast as they're talking about Gray Key, which is a new um, piece of hardware that police can use to decrypt your phones. So check out both of those. It's very technology-oriented, so if that's not your thing, I apologize. But it's cool that... Uh, what we cover here about the criminal justice system can sometimes bleed over into the technology world, and I just think that's really awesome. So check both of those out. Uh, also, if you have not already, please join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. It is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become a financial supporter of this podcast, which is how we pay Mike and make sure we cover our hosting and everything else, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. In exchange for your uh, donations, in addition to my eternal gratitude, we do have a few bonus episodes for you if you want to learn about the law. And if you're at a certain level, we will actually allow you to pick a future Law 140. Uh, if you happen to be one of our Law 140 lovers and you have not yet heard from me about your topic, uh, fear not, you will get a message as soon as I have the free time to send it to you. Be thinking about what topic you want us to cover. Uh, speaking of Law 140, there is no Law 140 in this episode because you got an hour-long Law 140 last week. So go listen to that. Uh, this is mostly criminal justice news. I do want to dip a toe into politics briefly because in less than a month, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different resignations slash not hirings from the administration of our beloved Papaya POTUS, Donald Trump. You have back in February 27th, Josh Raffle, who was the deputy communications director, he resigned. The next day on February 28th, Hope Hicks, she was the president's third communications director. She resigned. Uh, she was the one that was dating the wife beater. Rob Porter, is that his name? Porter something. Um, so she stepped down. Then you had less than a week after that, Gary Cohn, the chief economic advisor, he resigned. And the funny part is he resigned because he was upset over tariffs. You know, the Nazi comments after Charlottesville, the crazy shit about the wall, all the assorted extra constitutional attempts at, you know, creating a little tyranny. All that was fine. But man, tariffs were a step too far. So Cohn stepped down. Then on March 12th, you had John McEntee, who is the president's what they call body man. Basically, the guy like, is like his own personal secretary to you know get his dry cleaning, pick up his coffee, whatever else. Uh, he had to be fired because he couldn't get a security clearance. Then on March 13th, you had Secretary of State Rex Tillerson got fired via tweet. And there's some dispute over that. You know, They said, no, no, they told him ahead of time. 
And then Steve Goldstein, who was one of Rex's assistants, said, no, that's not true. He was fired via tweet. So they fired Goldstein after that. So Tillerson was fired on the 13th. Goldstein was fired on the 14th. Then on the 16th, you had Andrew McCabe, who was the second in command at the FBI. Uh, He was fired on that Friday, two days before he could have retired and drew his full pension. Uh, And then on March 22nd, H.R. McMaster, the second national security advisor after the Russian puppet Mike Flynn, uh, McMaster was fired. Then the same day, John Dowd, Trump's personal attorney, resigned from the legal defense team. And then three days later, so let me back up. On the 22nd, Jay Sekulow, who is Trump's personal lawyer, announced that a guy named Joseph DiGenova and Victoria Tenzing, two other lawyers, were going to be joining the legal team. But then on March 25th, just yesterday, well, two days from now by the time you hear this, but Saturday, it was announced that no way they're not going to be hired after all because there was no chemistry, quote unquote, between them and the president. Now, look, I don't want to undersell the importance of chemistry. I have certainly refused to represent people that I don't like. But the prestige, if it's still prestigious given that it's Trump, but in general, the prestige of representing the White House and the paycheck that comes with it. Uh, It's pretty tantalizing for a lot of attorneys, so something else seems to be going on there. But if my count's right, that's nearly a dozen people who have either been fired, resigned, or their hiring was announced and then called off in less than a month. This is all less than 30 days, February 27th to March 25th. That's less than 30 days, y'all. This is not normal. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. This is not normal. So that's all the politics we're going to talk about. I just want to make clear that this is an administration in utter chaotic dysfunction. And sweet baby Jesus, November cannot get here soon enough. My hope is that the Republicans lose both chambers of Congress. Not because I think Republicans are fundamentally bad. I'm sure there are Republican Congress critters who do good work. But the fact is they are utterly fucking spineless trying to contain the chaos in the executive branch. They're first in the Constitution for a reason. Go look up the Constitution. Article 1 is the legislative branch, and they do absolutely fucking nothing to merit that designation. So I hope that someone hostile to the president takes over the legislative branch and at the very least puts the brakes on everything he does, You know, defunds whatever that he's trying to do until he comes around and starts acting like an adult. Uh, so in criminal justice news... There's a uh, story in the New York Times about a massive, massive study covering millions of children and how they end up economically, tracking how they were raised and then how they turn out as adults. And it's very sobering stuff because essentially what you find is even rich black boys grow into poor black men and then poor black boys stay poor while as the white folks tend to gain wealth. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Black boys raised in America, even in the wealthiest families and living in some of the most well-to-do neighborhoods, still earn less in adulthood than white boys with similar backgrounds, according to a sweeping new study that traced the lives of millions of children. White boys who grew up rich are likely to remain that way. Black boys raised at the top, however, are more likely to become poor than they are to stay wealthy in their own adult households. Even when children grow up next to each other, with parents who earn similar incomes, black boys fare worse than white boys in 99% of America. And the gaps only worsen in the kind of neighborhoods that promise low poverty and good schools. 
According to the study, led by researchers at Stanford, Harvard, and the Census Bureau, income inequality between blacks and whites is driven entirely by what is happening among these boys and the men they become. Though black girls and women face deep inequality on many measures, black and white girls from families with comparable earnings attain similar individual incomes as adults. The study, based on anonymized earnings and demographic data for virtually all Americans now in their late 30s, debunks a number of other widely held hypotheses about income equality. Gaps persisted, even when black and white boys grew up in families with the same income, similar family structures, similar education levels, and even similar levels of accumulated wealth. The disparities that remain also can't be explained by differences in cognitive ability, an argument made by people who cite racial gaps and test scores that appear for both black boys and girls. If such inherent differences existed by race, quote, you've got to explain to me why these putative ability differences aren't handicapping women in their earnings, said David Grusky, a Stanford sociologist who has reviewed the research. It's a very lengthy story. And one of the the key questions that they don't definitively answer, because that's not the purpose of this particular study, is what is causing it? And as I was reading through it, so like the, the New York Times piece links to the study itself, which I went on to read. Uh, but as I'm reading it, in my mind, I'm thinking, it's got to be our criminal justice system. And as I'm going through it, there's one particular line that gives away the game that, yes, that's actually one of the huge parts about it. Quote, the sons of black families from the top 1% had about the same chance of being incarcerated on any given day as the sons of white families earning $36,000. So they, what they do is there's a graph that maps out odds of incarceration by wealth and then uh, same for both blacks and whites. And what you find is that if you're a poor black person, your odds of being incarcerated are utterly fucking phenomenal. And I don't mean that in a good way. If you're a poor white person, they're still higher, but dramatically less so. And then as you get wealthier, the odds of being incarcerated drop. But for minorities, it's still fantastically higher. And again, I don't mean that in a good sense than it is for whites. The only demographic that has even a remotely comparable incarceration rate is Native Americans. For Hispanics, it's less. For Asian Americans, it's below whites. Uh, but basically, if you are a black person in the top 1% wealthiest black households, we're talking black millionaires here, you're still likely to be arrested as if you were a broke white person. So, you know, God, this is not equality of opportunity. That's the part that bothers me. You know, you will hear in politics all the time, and I, I've repeated this myself, you know, Republicans want equality of opportunity, Democrats want equality of outcome. Let's all be poor and miserable together. You know, well, guess what, guys? This isn't equality of opportunity. You have a system in place that the data is confirming. We're tracking millions of people here confirming that the system is completely fucking over anyone who's got a darker skin pigmentation. That's a problem. And if you can't recognize it, get the fuck out of the way and turn power over to people who can. Uh, in federal news, confirming that the love of police abuse is bipartisan, uh, the Obama-era Department of Justice compiled dossiers on the movements of Black Lives Matter activists and tracked them as they went around the country. From the uh, story in The Intercept, says, quote, at the height of 2014's Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson, Missouri, FBI agents tracked the movements of an activist flying in from New York 
and appear to have surveilled the homes and cars of any individuals tied to the protests, according to recently released documents provided to The Intercept. The documents, which include FBI emails and intelligence reports from November 2014, suggest that federal surveillance of Black Lives Matter protests went far beyond the online intelligence gathering first reported by The Intercept in 2015. That intelligence gathering by the federal government had employed open source information, such as social media, to profile and keep track of activists. The newly released documents suggest the FBI put resources toward running informants, as well as physical surveillance of anti-racist activists. One report, produced on November 21, 2014, shows an FBI agent alerting officials about a protester's plans to travel from New York to Ferguson for a Thanksgiving Day protest starting at a facility of Monsanto, a multinational agrochemical corporation. The FBI narrative, which was provided for coordination with Monsanto, does not mention how authorities knew about the protesters' travel plans. The report also highlights money raised for bail funds and, subquote, direct action devices a reference to materials used in protest demonstrations, but does not reference any indications of potential violence. The intelligence summary notes the activist in question, whose name was redacted, is subquote believed to have been arrested at a previous protest. The report also refers to a separate document about the individual, suggesting that the FBI had compiled an individualized dossier on the protester. A search of two FBI databases found no derogatory information on the activist, according to the report narrative. Now look, I, I have talked before about the fact that I am very conservative politically. And people always raise an eyebrow. They're like, how could you be conservative and actually be bothered by the fact that people of color are discriminated against in the country? That doesn't mesh. And my response is this. There is no oppressor more experienced than your federal government. It just doesn't exist. You want to talk about you know, the FBI trying to convince Martin Luther King Jr. to kill himself, the MOVE bombing, COINTELPRO when they were uh, infiltrating protest organizations, uh, Senator Super Predator, the 1994 crime bill, the school to prison pipeline, mass incarceration. The list goes on and on and on. This is how your government works. And if you happen to be involved in any kind of activity where you're opposing these types of folks, you know, just go look at Durham. The people who were arrested for pulling down a Confederate monument, the people who were arrested for having a weapon at a parade, an anti-Klan demonstration later on in an open carry state, arrested because a statute that was unconstitutional, but that didn't stop the police from arresting people anyway. You know, you go through the stories we've covered on this podcast for the past 10 months, and this is a recurring theme you see with your government. So keep that in mind as you're trying to figure out what uh, reforms need to be made. In state-by-state news out of California, we've got five stories out there this week. In Los Angeles, the L.A. Police Commission has adopted a policy change that will hopefully require the department to start releasing body cam and dash cam footage to the public. Uh, Out of the L.A. Times, story says, quote, The Los Angeles Police Department's years-long practice of keeping video from body cameras and patrol cars under wraps will soon end after the agency's civilian bosses approved a policy that requires the release of recordings in the future. The 4-0 vote by the police commission marks a dramatic turnaround for a department that refused to make such footage public, even as it rolled out thousands of body cameras to officers in recent years. The new approach will give the public a first-hand look at some of the most crucial moments involving the LAPD, including shootings by officers, deaths that occur in their custody, and other encounters when they use force that kills or seriously injures someone. 
Uh, Subquote, transparency and accountability are the bedrocks of building public trust, said police commissioner Shane Murphy Goldsmith, who helped draft the policy. The public has a right to see these videos. I'm actually surprised he hasn't been fired yet for promoting that as a policy, but good for him. I hope it actually comes to fruition because that's exactly how it should be. These types of recordings should be public by default. And then you set up a process to withhold them if, you know, people who aren't involved in it happen to be on the video and they don't want to be subjected to the scrutiny that would come from releasing it to the media. But you need to have a baseline of access instead of the North Carolina model where the baseline is you don't get to see it at all no matter what unless the police choose to illegally release it to the media. Uh, out of Sacramento, to Sacramento... <laughs> God, I'm not even going to give you a summary. I'm just going to read you the story. Quote, two Sacramento County Sheriff's Department deputies are being investigated after they stole money from a 75-year-old woman with dementia, put her home up for sale, and then sent her on a plane to the Philippines without alerting her family. The Sheriff's Department began investigating two of its own in January when someone alerted them that an elderly woman was being taken advantage of, police officials said in a news release. The person had not seen the victim, identified by the Associated Press as Rosalie Santalana Chu, for several days and they were concerned for her welfare. Several law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, U.S. Attorney's Office, and U.S. Marshal Service, assisted in finding her. Investigators eventually determined that she had been placed on an airplane and sent to the Philippines to stay with extended family there. She was found and was safely escorted back to the U.S. It is unclear why the deputies sent the victim to the Philippines. After executing several search warrants, investigators discovered, subquote, many unusual activities by both deputies, both on and off duty. Uh, Allegations of improper conduct by one of the deputies also surfaced in another county. Yeah. So uh, one of the deputies is a 14-year veteran, Stephanie Angel. The other deputy has not been identified, but is described as a six-year veteran. Believe it or not, that is not the worst thing to happen with Sacramento police this week, because they also decided to shoot and kill an unarmed black man for sport in his own backyard. Uh, the uh, 22-year-old black man fatally shot by Sacramento. This is from the story, by the way. His name is Stefan Clark. The 22-year-old black man fatally shot by Sacramento. Sorry, I, I got to stop. Let me back up. So after they killed him, there was a news release because police always do these news releases right after they kill somebody. And what they do is they trot out total bullshit to try and cover, you know, make sure that the narrative that emerges is one favorable to them. And then after people point out the narrative is bullshit, it then gets tweaked, but it gets tweaked at a time and place that makes it likely fewer people happen to see it. So after they killed this guy, the official press conference was that he had, quote, a toolbar that he was wielding at police. Now, no one knows what the fuck a toolbar is because every normal person who has heard of a toolbar is referring to the thing in your web browser that helps you go to specific areas. And the media picked up on this. They said, hey, what the fuck is a toolbar? Well, you will be shocked, and I mean shocked, to discover that it wasn't one. It was a fucking cell phone. The man had an iPhone in his hands. So that's the backstory for what I'm about to quote you. Uh, 
Okay, so again, quote, the 22-year-old black man fatally shot by Sacramento police in his own backyard Sunday night was carrying a cell phone, not a toolbar. When confronted by officers, the department clarified, and I'm putting that in air quotes, clarified late Monday. Stephon Clark was killed in the backyard of the South Sacramento home he shared with his grandmother, grandfather, and some siblings. The police department claim officers were responding to a call of a person breaking car windows nearby. Police said they believed Clark was armed with a gun, though no firearm was found at the scene. Police said instead Clark had a subquote object that he subquote extended in front of him while advancing towards two officers. Now, let me pause. This is another piece that turned out to be complete and total bullshit because they released helicopter video and body cam video, and some pioneering person on the internet, God bless you, decided to sync up all of those videos at the same time. So it's like a, a fucking panorama. You can see everything that's happening all at once. And basically, this guy. I sees police. He doesn't even know they're police. He sees random ass people come up on him. They never announce that they're police. He goes into his backyard and stands behind a picnic table. Who the fuck does that if you're trying to advance on the people that are coming after you? You don't stand behind the goddamn picnic table. But it gets worse because after they don't announce themselves as police, you hear a dude on the video say gun and they just start shooting the fuck out of him. At least 20 shots total are fired. But then they decide that they get a 911 call from someone reporting the shots. Surprise, it's the dead guy's own grandmother. And rather than tell her, hey, we just shot your grandson, they grilled her ass for hours trying to figure out what she knows because they wanted to make sure that she couldn't fuck up their future narrative. So the story continues, quote, Sakita Thompson, Clark's grandmother, said she was awake and sitting in the home's dining room when she heard four gunshots. The only thing that I heard was pow, 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 and I got to the ground, she said. Thompson dropped to the floor and crawled to the spot where her seven-year-old granddaughter slept on the couch in an adjacent den, telling her to get on the ground as well. She then made her way to her husband, who uses a wheelchair to move around. Thompson said her husband called 911 to report the shots. Police interviewed Thompson for several hours about what she had heard, but did not tell her about Clark. She eventually decided to look out a window and saw her grandson's dead body in her backyard. Subquote, I opened that curtain and he was dead. I just started screaming. Both officers involved with the shooting were placed on paid administrative leave. Translation, paid vacation. One has been a Sacramento Police Department officer for four years, the other for two. Each had four years of experience with other law enforcement agencies before joining SPD. Now, the other piece about this, aside from the toolbar not making sense, the fact that they never announced themselves, never gave commands, they're trying to figure out, they insist, that this guy was going around breaking windows. And the thing that they claim that was being done with was a piece of gutter that was being used. Now, here's the thing. I've done work on houses before. If you've ever held a gutter, it's not exactly a firm piece of stuff. They're supposed to be lightweight. The odds of you taking out a window with it are slim, but let's assume for the sake of argument that it could be done. You'll notice he's not carrying the fucking gutter as he's supposedly running around because in addition to being uh, lightweight, they're also rather like 
awkwardly shaped. They're long, thin pieces. So if you want to try walking around with a long, thin piece of something lightweight, you can't really do that while running without it flying around all over the place. So the whole thing is just bullshit. It doesn't smell right. There's no telling what kind of thing is going to happen once this is all said and done. But right now, you know, it certainly looks like state-sanctioned murder to me. At the very least, it's an extrajudicial summary execution of yet another unarmed black man without any due process at all whatsoever. Uh, In San Diego, police decided that it would be appropriate to create a point system where they would get rewards if they had more arrests. From the story, it says, quote, a San Diego police officer is blowing the whistle on a newly unveiled program that reports to uh, that reports. It should be purports uh, purports to reward officers for making more narcotics arrests. It's a reward system, a bounty system for officers seeking rewards for their arrests. He tells us KGTV was provided a copy of an internal email that was sent last week from a sergeant to more than 90 officers. It states that the program is. Strictly voluntary, I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, and that the program runs from March 1st through April 14th. Accompanying the email is an attachment outlining the program details, including the point scale. More serious drug arrests, like sales arrests, earn two points apiece. A less serious arrest earns one point. A citation earns an officer half a point. And the top two point earners at the end of the period are going to be rewarded by having the opportunity to work in specialized units. Our police source says he and others raised concerns. Subquote, I was basically told to stay within my pay grade. I was told that no one will find out, and it is technically not illegal, he said. He also says the program was designed to target low-income neighborhoods with fewer resources to fight drug problems. Subquote, that's unfair because my intention as a police officer is to help those neighborhoods entirely, not to proactively seek people that meet the criteria to arrest to reward myself. Now, I got a surprise for him and everyone else. Uh, The war on drugs is designed primarily to reward police. That's why so much of it is revolving around civil asset forfeiture. The departments keep that money. The court costs, like in North Carolina, a chunk of that money goes back to the police department. The entire reason we spend so much time and money locking up people for weed possession is because it's a money racket. That's the whole reason why it's done. Kudos to this guy for reporting the ridiculous point system. But if he joined the force thinking that it was out to help people, as participating in the drug unit and not to help pad department coffers, uh, he's wrong. I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. In San Luis Obispo, this is a disgusting fucking case. And I, I don't mean disgusting and like gross, but disgusting is like utterly morally depraved people. Uh, another example of the first rule of Fisk, which is police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, Video has been released showing jailers in San Luis Obispo laughing their asses off as they watch an inmate die of a seizure in front of them. They think it's fucking funny. From the story, it says, quote, After releasing an inmate who'd been bound naked in a restraint chair for 46 hours, that's almost two days, sitting naked in one spot, sheriff's deputies at the San Luis Obispo County Jail watched as the man writhed on the floor, lost consciousness, and later died. Video obtained by the Tribune shows. The footage, and you're going to be shocked by this part, the footage contradicts 
County officials' version of events leading to the death of inmate Andrew Holland in January 2017. That version of the events they claimed was that he was under the care of a physician at the time and he was found dead. Well, turns out the, quote, the Atascadero resident was pronounced dead on the floor in his holding cell at 5.36 p.m. on January 22, 2017, roughly one hour after he was released following those nearly two full days strapped to a plastic restraint chair. The county's medical examiner ruled Holland's cause of death as natural due to a pulmonary embolism where a blood clot in his leg traveled to his lung. The video from that day shows deputies watching from outside the cell as Holland writhes on the floor in pain, struggles to breathe, and loses consciousness. Some deputies are captured laughing at several points throughout the footage. Yeah, it's fucking funny having a naked guy on the floor dying in front of you. Contrary to the county's account of the incident, the video shows that Holland was not, subquote, found unconscious and unresponsive, and was not, subquote, under the continual care of a physician. In an email Thursday, County Administrative Officer Wade Horton called the video, subquote, extremely painful to watch. No shit. You know who else it was painful for? Andrew fucking Holland, who's now dead. Uh, out of the District of Columbia, prosecutors decided to uh, chicken out and dropped charges against Turkish President Erdogan's security detail for beating the everlasting shit out of American protesters last summer. Uh, we talked about that back in episode four. That was uh, back in May, May or early June, one of the two of them. But from the story, it says, quote, Prosecutors in recent months have dropped assault charges against several security guards for Turkish President Recep Erdogan, who were allegedly involved in a melee last May outside the Turkish ambassador's residence in Washington. Video of the incident, which showed guards for the visiting Turkish president charging and beating protesters who had gathered outside the Sheridan Circle residence, sparked international condemnation. Fifteen guards were indicted in July, but federal prosecutors in the district dismissed charges against four members of the security detail in November. Last month, they dropped the cases against seven others. Charges against four guards remain active, but the men left the country soon after the incident, and experts have said it is unlikely they will ever be put on trial. Now, let this be yet another example that when the Moscow Muppet, Donald Trump, tells you he is putting America first, He's lying to you. He has allowed foreign government officials to come on American soil, beat Americans, have it caught on video, and do absolutely nothing about it because he's fucking spineless. Uh, out of Georgia and Columbus, you know, part of, let me back up, sorry. Part of how I realized the magnitude of the race problem in the country was because I became a lawyer and I saw how utterly brazen people in the court system are when it comes to race. So this next story is an example of that. Prosecutors in Georgia, when they're looking at potential jurors, what they would do is they would take handwritten notes and they would categorize people based on their criteria. So for example, they would separate people by gender. They would use M for male. They would use F for female. And they would also designate people by race. They would use W for white. And for black, they would use, drumroll please, an N. From the story, it says, quote, In handwritten notes, Columbus prosecutors described prospective African-American jurors as slow, ignorant, con artist, and fat. 
They also jotted an N next to black people's names on jury lists and routinely ranked them as the least desirable jurors. This astonishing system of race discrimination, I'm going to pause. The word astonishing is in the news report. Shit ain't astonishing to me, frankly. Uh, This astonishing system of race discrimination revealed in a court motion filed Monday was intended to exclude black people from juries in seven death penalty cases against black defendants in the 1970s. Now, I'm going to pause the note. It wasn't just the 70s because there's a case in North Carolina uh, from the late 80s, I think it is, where a prosecutor actually did a very similar thing. Uh, And those handwritten notes, so I talked about them on Twitter, um, same type of situation where it was disclosed in discovery what prosecutors were doing. And in that particular case, the guy was given a new trial. Uh, Or rather, his death sentence was commuted to life without parole. Let me make sure I've got that right. The story continues, quote, The motion was filed on behalf of Johnny Lee Gates, who was serving a sentence of life without parole for the 1976 rape and murder of Katrina Wright. Attorneys contend Gates deserves a new trial because prosecutors made a concerted effort to keep black people off of his jury. In Gates' case, the prosecution struck all four prospective black jurors who had the N beside their name. I will leave it to your imagination to think what the N could possibly stand for. Uh, In Lawrenceville, Georgia, a family is filing suit after their son died in jail because jailers refused to provide him with medical care. From the story, it says, quote, a local family is still grieving the loss of their son who died last year while in custody of the Gwinnett County Jail. They're suing the county and the sheriff's office for its negligent, reckless and intentional acts and omissions. They say led to his death on February 16th of 2017, 23 year old Christopher Cody Howard suffered a severe prolonged seizure at the jail where instead of calling 911 or medical personnel, deputies, quote, placed Christopher in a cell where he continued to suffer until he lost consciousness. Basically, this guy was on probation for a DWI and went to a meeting with his probation officer. The officer decided that he had violated probation somehow, and he also has some kind of insulin problem where basically he has to eat periodically throughout the day so that he doesn't uh, get ill. The story continues, quote, for more than five hours... Christopher waited with his probation officer without food before he was finally transferred to the jail. About half an hour before he was booked into jail, his father spoke to him over the phone. I told him, I said, son, make sure you get something to eat, Robert Howard said. I said, I know you probably won't like the food at the jail, but you've got to eat something. Christopher Howard didn't get that chance. According to jail logs, he was booked into the jail at 4.30 p.m. on February 15th, and when he spoke to his girlfriend on the telephone at 10 o'clock p.m., he told her he hadn't been able to eat at all that day. By the time they got him booked into the jail, he told them he needed something to eat because he had a metabolic deficiency, his father said. The jailers responded, subquote, sorry, we already served dinner. So now this kid, who had not actually been convicted of anything, because remember, a charge is not a conviction. He was being held in jail until he could have a trial. Uh, he's now dead. In Hawaii, now I'm going to, I'm going to, pause here. So this story that you're about to hear is one crazy, but two, it's also old. So this came out in October during the period of time where I was dealing with, you know, dog stuff. So I missed it. Uh, There have been recent court developments that aren't important. It's really just procedural uh, haggling over when the trial is actually going to take place. I thought this was kind of weird that there was a police officer on trial. So I went to go look it up and I found the original indictment from October that we missed. Uh, So basically, the gist of it is two Honolulu Police Department officers are on trial for falsifying records and obstructing justice. 
But the reason why is utterly bizarre. From the story, it says, quote, The current and former Honolulu police officers who were arrested in connection with the alleged theft of retired Honolulu police chief Louis Kialoa's mailbox were released on bonds. U.S. District Court Magistrate Judge Richard Puglisi ruled that Officer Bobby Nguyen and retired Major Gordon Shiraishi be released on $50,000 signature bonds. Nguyen is charged with conspiring with others to alter and falsify records, obstruct an official proceeding, and make a false statement. Shiraishi is charged with obstructing an official proceeding. The charges appear to stem from testimony and information provided by another retired police officer, Niel Silva, who pleaded guilty last December to a conspiracy charge in a deal with federal prosecutors in exchange for his cooperation. They were charged in connection with an incident in June of 2013 when the Kialoas reported their mailbox had been stolen. I shouldn't laugh, but like of all the dumb things to do, stealing someone's mailbox is pretty, uh, is pretty dumb. Uh, prosecutors say the report was false, and the subsequent police investigation was a conspiracy to frame and discredit Gerard Puana, Catherine Kialoha's uncle, according to court documents. So they reported a stolen mailbox that was actually a false report. Uh, Puana's former attorney, first assistant federal public defender Alexander Silvert, has said Kialoha wanted to discredit Puana in a civil lawsuit in which Puana and his mother claimed Kialoha had stolen $150,000 from them in connection with a reverse mortgage that she oversaw. The theft of the mailbox, or I guess the non-theft of the mailbox, the reported theft of the mailbox, was investigated by officers in HPD's Criminal Intelligence Unit. Shiraishi was the commanding officer of the CIU, and Nguyen and Silva were assigned to the unit at the time. Also at the time, Nguyen lived in the back of the Kialoa's house in Kahala and was married to Catherine Kialoa's niece. This, this is, it's like a soap opera, but it's Honolulu police. Um, it's crazy. So I'll, I'll give you the link to the show notes. You can read more of the story. It's just super bizarre. Uh, in Illinois, out of Homer Glen, police there are protecting and serving the fuck out of your infant's cremated remains, all in the name of the war on drugs. From the story, it says, quote, a suburban father says his late daughter's ashes were mishandled by a sheriff's deputy who mistook the ashes for drugs. The deputy chief claims his officer used, subquote, extreme caution when handling a vial filled with human remains. But the owner says after it spilled in his car, he now feels lost. Subquote, losing my daughter once was enough to kill most people. Losing my daughter twice, uncalled for, said Anthony Butler. Butler's daughter Mariah was 11 days old when she died in 2014 from a congenital heart defect. All he has left of her is a photo album and a vial of her ashes that he wears every day. Butler says it was filled until Sunday after a run-in with a Will County Sheriff's deputy. The Romeoville man had just bought an SUV when he was pulled over Sunday night by a deputy. Subquote, it started off as a normal traffic stop. No front, t- no front plate. I will accept the ticket, he said. Then the deputy asked to search the car. Butler said yes, that was a mistake. Uh, He says he was handcuffed and placed in the back of a patrol car when the officer found a vial containing a white powdery substance, which, according to a police officer, looked similar to narcotics. Now, here's the thing. I've seen a lot of coke. I've seen heroin. I've seen meth. 
It's part of doing drug defense work. These things get entered into evidence. I saw them when I was a clerk of court down in Raleigh. I know what this stuff looks like. None of them look anything like cremated human remains. They just don't look alike. And if you think they look alike, you have no business being a police officer doing drug work. From the story, it continues, uh, the field test came back negative and Butler was free to go. He found the vial in his vehicle, but the inner cap was missing and the outer cap was not secured. So when he picked up the remains, the bottom half fell to the bottom of the console along with all of his daughter's ashes scattered everywhere. And the most disturbing part, like this story is terrible, but the disturbing part about it is that when it got posted online, another story in California got appended to it and included in Raleigh's News and Observer, the paper that I read regularly. And then I posted it on Twitter and like a half dozen people said, oh yeah, I had something similar happen. Like what the fuck is going on? Do we have no respect for the dead in this country? Jesus Christ. Uh, so I'll give you a link to that story. It's, it, oh God, it pisses me off. So out of Maryland, Uh, We got a few cases out of Baltimore. A federal jury has awarded the family of Corin Gaines $37 million for her death. Uh, She was the one who was killed on video back in 2016, and the police shooting was so bad that they also shot her five-year-old son. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, A Baltimore County jury on Friday awarded more than $37 million in damages in the civil lawsuit brought by the family of Corin Gaines, the 23-year-old Randallstown woman who was shot and killed by county police after a six-hour standoff in 2016. The jury of six women said the first shot fired by Corporal Royce Ruby at Gaines, killing her and then injuring her then five-year-old son, Cody, was not reasonable and therefore violated their civil rights under state and federal statutes. The jury awarded more than $32 million to Cody for damages and $4.5 million for his sister, Gaines's other child, Carson. Gaines's father and mother were awarded $300,000 and $307,000, respectively, and the Gaines estate was awarded another $300,000. No punitive damages were awarded. The jury took less than three hours to reach its verdict against Ruby and the Baltimore County government. Now, you will undoubtedly be shocked to learn that not only is Royce Ruby still on the police force, he got himself a promotion. That corporal I mentioned earlier, he originally was just an officer, but he got promoted to corporal. Uh, Also in Baltimore, the Gun Trace Task Force is added again. So a judge dismissed an attempted murder case based on the work of the task force. That part is the first piece of the story. But there's a twist that we're going to get to at the end that's a completely separate part of the story. So the piece about the murder trial, story in the Baltimore Sun, says, quote, A Baltimore judge on Friday threw out an attempted murder case that city prosecutors were bringing forward despite the arrest being made by members of the Corrupt Gun Trace Task Force. Prosecutors were pursuing charges against a 51-year-old Charles Smith by hoping to work around using the convicted officers as witnesses, while the defense was poised to have them transported from detention centers and put on the stand next week. Circuit Court Judge Marcus Z. Shar nixed those plans, according to Assistant Public Defender Deborah Levy. She said Shar dismissed the case during pretrial motions after determining video footage showed more involvement at the scene by the gun unit officers than had been discussed, and that was not turned over to the defense. 
Subquote, the entire case springs from the GTTF officer's observations, she said Friday after the dismissal. You can't, on one hand, say this is the greatest scandal and dismiss convictions because they're not reliable and then go forward on their reliability. That is all true. And further in that story, you notice that the prosecutors turned over surveillance video that was only 1.5 minutes in length when they actually had over 30 minutes of that exact same surveillance footage. So that is story one. Story two about the exact same case uh, is in a separate publication that we'll give you a link to. And in this one, it says, and it's referring to the same decision. So there's going to be, even though there's separate reporters, separate publications, there's overlap in what they're talking about. Quote, the decision interrupted a shocking moment in which Detective Stephen Henson of Baltimore Police Department Cyber Crimes took the stand and did not immediately have to answer for the video discrepancies, but rather for lewd comments he made to a law clerk who had made Judge Shar aware of them earlier in the day. There had been a moment during a recess where you could hear a woman raising her voice outside the courtroom, and when the law clerk entered moments after that, she appeared visibly angry. Subquote, did you make any comments about her body? Judge Shar asked Henson as soon as he was sworn in. Henson, who was reminded he was under oath, denied the allegation and said that all he had said to the law clerk was, Hello! Both Levy and Heinem, the prosecutor, asked Henson under oath about the comments, and he maintained again that all he said was, hello. Levy wondered if the law clerk should testify right then about it if she felt uncomfortable, but that did not happen. Ultimately, it was agreed that the law clerk, who was briefly in tears, would provide a written statement, and there was a general characterization of Henson's comments that they were about the law clerk's dress and body and that Henson's comments outside the courtroom had escalated over the past few days. Subquote, this has happened many times, and people are finally willing to speak up about it, Judge Shar said, breaking the stoic composure he'd maintained throughout the trial. You'd think that we're past this. That's fucking astonishing, that you were a police officer on a case that's being thrown out because the officers themselves are corrupt as fuck, and you spend your time in court sexually harassing the clerk of the judge that's presiding over the case. Like, where the fuck does this happen? Fourth rule of Fisk, The Wire was a documentary. Uh, out of Michigan and Detroit, taxpayers will be shelling out $225,000 for a puppy side in 2016. Uh, out of Reason Magazine, the story says, quote, the city of Detroit will pay $225,000 to settle a civil rights lawsuit stemming from a 2016 marijuana raid that left three dogs shot to death by police. The Detroit City Council approved the settlement to Kenneth Savage and Ashley Franklin, who filed a federal lawsuit against the city and three Detroit police officers last July. The lawsuit alleged the officers shot Savage and Franklin's three dogs while the animals were enclosed behind an eight-foot-tall fence. Also, the officers could confiscate several potted marijuana plants in the backyard. Detroit has been sued multiple times over the past few years for police shootings of dogs. In 2016, the council approved a $100,000 settlement to a man after police shot his dog while it was securely chained to a fence. A 2016 Reason investigation found that the Detroit Police Department's Major Violators Unit, which conducts hundreds of drug raids a year in the city, had a nasty habit of leaving dead dogs in its wake. One officer had killed 69 dogs over the course of his career. Public records obtained by Reason showed that officer is now up to 73 kills, according to the most recent records. 
Yikes. Uh, out of Minnesota and Minneapolis, murder charges have been filed against killer cop Mohammed Noor. He's the guy who uh, killed off Australian Justine Damon when she reported a crime happening. He showed up to investigate and shot her dead. From the story, it says, quote, the Minneapolis police officer who fatally shot an unarmed woman last July was charged with third degree murder and second degree manslaughter eight months after the case sparked protests, international outrage and the firing of the city's police chief. Now, I'm going to pause. That's not why the police chief resigned, because if you go back through our old episodes from that time period, there was actually several other issues with police beating the shit out of random people caught on video and shooting multiple puppies in the span of a day and several other controversies all at the same time. But let's go ahead and we're just going to run with this and pretend this is why the police chief was fired. The story continues, quote, Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman said Muhammad Noor, 32, acted recklessly when he fired the shot into the dark that killed 40-year-old Justine Damon after she called 911 to report a suspected rape in her South Minneapolis neighborhood. The shot came after Noor and his partner, Matthew Harity, had driven through the alley behind Damon's home, saw no suspicious activity, and were preparing to leave when they were surprised by someone outside the police car. Harity, the driver, told investigators he was, subquote, spooked and feared for his life and took his gun from its holster before Nor just reached across and fired his weapon out the driver's side window. Now, we're going to give you links in the show notes to uh, the three prior episodes where we talked about this case. But one thing I want you to remember, and I've said this before, wake me up when they actually get a conviction. Because you'll recall, the last time we talked about this, the prosecutor had been recorded at a fundraiser telling people that he was going to drop the case because he couldn't get enough evidence to convict. So the, the jig is in already, in my mind. I think he's going to be acquitted, but he's brown, so we'll see what happens. Uh, out of Missouri, in St. Louis... Racial profiling apparently is not a legitimate reason to lose your job, according to internal affairs folks. From the story in the St. Louis Tribune, Lieutenant Patrick Rick Hayes was fired five years ago after nine officers told internal affairs investigators he had ordered them to racially profile black people in and around South St. Louis County shopping centers. In January, he returned to duty, working for the same police department that had taken his badge. The internal affairs process has left the current chief, John Belmar, at odds with the Civilian Board of Police Commissioners, which oversees the department, over whether Hayes belongs on the force. Hayes appealed his firing to the board, which determined Hayes' offenses were worthy of demotion to patrolman from lieutenant, but not termination. A judge then ordered the department to take Hayes back. Now, stop and think how utterly fucking insane that is. This guy is a supervisor instructing other officers to racially profile people, and his reward for that is to be put on patrol where he himself can racially profile people. That's so fucking stupid. The story continues, quote, Belmar declined an interview request, but said in a statement that he believes his predecessor made the right call in firing Hayes. 
Subquote, Officer Hayes was terminated in May of 2013 by former Chief Tim Fitch, which demonstrates the department does not take allegations of misconduct lightly. However, the department will certainly abide by the Honorable Judge Green's order. The St. Louis County Police Department will continue to ensure that officers treat every member of our community with dignity and respect. Hayes declined to comment through his attorney, Neil Bruntrager, citing pending litigation. Hayes is seeking to be reinstated as a lieutenant and be given back pay, but for now, he's working as a patrolman. In New Jersey, we got two stories there out of Atlantic City. A jury has found Officer John Devlin liable for a really savage beating of uh, Stephen Sadler a few years ago out of the press of Atlantic City. Story says, quote, A civil jury found former Atlantic City police officer John Devlin used excessive force in the 2013 arrest of Stephen Stadler and found the Atlantic City Police Department had policies in place that allowed violence by its officers to go unchecked. Two other officers in the case, Glenn Anthony Abrams Jr. and William Moore, were cleared. An attorney for the three officers could not be reached for comment. The city solicitor's office also did not return a call for comment. The case was resolved in civil court, not criminal. Devlin is retired from the department. Jennifer Bonjean, an attorney for Stadler, said she and her client are happy with the verdict, even though they did not get everything they wanted. Bonjean had hoped all the officers would be found liable and wanted the jury to punish Abrams and Devlin. Uh, essentially what happened, you refine this further in the story, is that Stadler was arrested, handcuffed, and after he was handcuffed, he was punched in the face by the two other officers. He started to resist, and they continued to beat him, and the uh, Devlin, the guy that was found liable, decided to release a canine to snack on the guy. Uh, the story says, quote, the city must pay Stadler $300,000, Devlin the guy that released the canine to snack on him must pay $500. Out of Carteret, New Jersey, dash cam footage has been released of several police officers discussing amongst themselves how Joseph Ryman, one of their colleagues, beat the everlasting shit out of a 16-year-old black boy for sport. From the story, it says, quote, One officer described a chaotic scene when he arrived at an arrest last year to find a bruised 16-year-old cuffed and face down in a bed of rocks with, subquote, blood all over the fucking place. A second described his appalled reaction on seeing the injured teen at Carteret Police Headquarters. Another said the incident was, subquote, indefensible. They said they know... Their, or rather, they knew their now-indicted fellow officer had pummeled the teen, but believed the department would cover for Officer Joseph Ryman, according to a previously unreleased dashboard camera video. Subquote, things don't look good, an officer says on the recording. Subquote, didn't look good at the scene, another responds. This is, this is hilarious in a bad way, because you got to think, you know, how is it that these guys knew that this was as bad as it was, but didn't turn this guy in. That's part one. Part two, they assumed their department would cover it up. You're voluntarily working in a corrupt-ass department that, from your own expectations, is going to violate the law to cover up police abuse. What the fuck? Uh, so that's out of New Jersey. Across the river in New York, the uh, New York Times has an expose on testa lying. So testifying with an L, police lying under oath. And it's a very long expose. I'm going to give you the link so you can read it all. But we're going to start with the first few paragraphs. It says, quote, Officer Nectar Martinez 
took the witness stand in a Bronx courtroom on October 10th, 2017, and swore to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God with a capital G. There had been a shooting, Officer Martinez testified, and he wanted to search a nearby apartment for evidence. A woman stood in the doorway, carrying a laundry bag. Officer Martinez said she set the bag down in the middle of the doorway, directly in his path. Subquote, I picked it up to move it, out of the way, so we could get in. What might be inside? Officer Martinez tapped the bag with his foot and felt something hard, he testified. He opened the bag, leading to the discovery of a Ruger 9mm handgun and the arrest of the woman. But a hallway surveillance camera captured the true story. There is no laundry bag or gun in sight as Officer Martinez and other investigators question the woman in the doorway and then just stride into the apartment. Inside, they did find a gun, but little to link it to the woman, Kimberly Thomas. Still, had the camera not captured the hallway scene, Officer Martinez's testimony might well have sent her to prison. Now, this is the funny part. Quote, when Miss Thomas's lawyer sought to play the video in court, Prosecutors in the Bronx dismissed the case. Then the court sealed the case file, hiding from view a problem so old and persistent that the criminal justice system sometimes responds with little more than a shrug. False testimony by the police. An investigation by the New York Times has found that on more than 25 occasions just since January 2015, Judges or prosecutors determined that a key aspect of a New York City police officer's testimony was probably untrue. The Times identified these cases, many of which are sealed, through interviews with lawyers, police officers, and current and former judges. In these cases, officers have lied about the whereabouts of guns, putting them in suspects' hands or waistbands when they were actually hidden out of sight. They have barged into apartments and conducted searches, only to testify otherwise later. Under oath, they have given first-hand accounts of crimes or arrests that they did not, in fact, witness. They have falsely claimed to have watched drug deals happen, only to later recant or be shown to have lied. No detail, seemingly, is too small to embellish. Clenched fists is how one Brooklyn officer described the hands of a man he claimed had angrily approached him and started screaming and yelling an encounter that prosecutors later determined never happened. Another officer, during a Bronx trial, accused a driver of recklessly crossing the double yellow line on a stretch of road that had no double yellow line. And it goes on and on and on. So I'm going to give you the link so you can read it. Just know it's a normal thing in the NYPD. Uh, out of North Carolina... Not going to talk to you about the geofence warrants case. You got to go listen to the Apple Insider podcast for the details on that one. But just know that was a big story this past week. Uh, also, we have news that Millie Dunn Vizi, who is a integration and civil rights pioneer, she was a native of Raleigh, uh, she has passed away. From her obituary, it says, quote, When Millie Dunn Vizi joined the U.S. military, it wasn't the most auspicious of starts. Subquote, I didn't weigh more than 102 pounds and didn't know how to tie my tie, she later recalled, but she was making history. It was 1942, and she would go on to serve in the only all-female, all-black unit in World War II. After that, she would return to her native North Carolina and play a leading role in the burgeoning civil rights movement. 
Dunvisi died on Friday, March 9th, a little more than a month after her 100th birthday. She's one of the last surviving African-American women to have served in World War II. So basically, she was part of what's called the 6888. That was a unit. And they were basically tasked with figuring out the mail because back during World War II, you had literal millions of soldiers and Red Cross personnel as part of the war effort. And the military's got to get them their letters and care packages and stuff. So there's a quote in the story that at one point in the war, there were 7,500 different Robert Smiths. And you had every variation of the name, Robert, Rob, Robbie, Bob, you know, and the, the unit, the 6888, was tasked with figuring out who these people were and making sure they got their letters. And basically, Dunvisi figured out that they were, well, let me back up. There was a huge backlog that had not been fixed, and they put this all-female, all-black unit on it with the expectation that they would fuck it up. Uh, but what she did was she devised a system where they would work in rotating eight-hour shifts apiece so they could just be working 24-7, getting through it all. And she did such a phenomenal job that she got promoted. They sent her down to France after the war to do some stuff down there as well. Uh, but further on in the story, in uh, her obit, it says, quote, After being given the chance to train to become an officer, Dunvisi declined and decided to pursue a business administration degree instead. She later worked as a teacher and as executive secretary to the president of St. Augustine's College in Raleigh, but also became more prominent in the civil rights movement. In 1963, she took part in the March to Washington, calling for stronger civil and economic rights for African Americans. She walked alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the event, during which he delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Two years after the March on Washington, she became the first female president for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in Raleigh and remained active in civic groups until her last years. Rest in peace. Uh, out of Oregon, in Wilsonville, Coffee Creek Correctional Facility decided that they weren't going to bother giving inmates a flu vaccine this year. And as a result, at least 44 inmates got sick, including one who has died. From the story in Willamette Week. Willamette Week. Sorry, I don't want to screw that up. I got fussed out a while back when I said Willamette. It's Willamette. Willamette Week. Uh, it says, quote, on January 15th, Tina Ferry died from the flu. Her last hours were spent in a hospital surrounded by her husband, children, and two prison guards. Ferry, 53, died of organ failure following a staph infection and pneumonia in both lungs. Prison officials say she was the lone casualty of a flu outbreak inside Coffee Creek Correctional Facility in Wilsonville that sickened at least 44 inmates. Ferry's death was unusual, but she shared one thing in common with the vast majority of Coffee Creek inmates— her medical records show she did not receive a flu shot. And the story goes on from there, and it's not good. Uh, out of Pennsylvania, we do have some good news. Let it not be said I don't report good news. So out of Philadelphia, uh, newly elected District Attorney Larry Krasner has been putting reforms into place as he's been in office for the past three months. And it's, it's really like... It's pretty radical stuff. And from my standpoint as a defense attorney and a conservative, I think it's pretty fucking awesome. Uh, so Sean King is now writing for The Intercept, and he's got a story on it. But rather than tell you his writing, what I want to do is actually read excerpts from the printout that Krasner distributed to his DAs. The very first line, quote, these policies are an effort to end mass incarceration and bring balance back to sentencing. It goes on, decline certain charges. 
Do not charge possession of marijuana, regardless of weight. Do not charge any of the offenses relating to paraphernalia or buying from a person where the drug involved is marijuana. Further down, charge and dispose of retail theft cases as summary offenses, unless the value of the items stolen in a particular case exceeds $500 or where the defendant has a very long history of theft and retail theft convictions. Summary gradation greatly reduces pretrial incarceration rates as no bail is required and the shorter time required for hearings expedites municipal court and common pleas dockets. Remember that a summary conviction permits a sentence of 90 days incarceration, fines up to $250, and full restitution. These penalties are sufficient to hold a retail thief accountable. There's a next section, divert more. All attorneys are directed to approach diversion and reentry with greater flexibility and an eye toward achieving accountability and justice while avoiding convictions where appropriate. For example, an otherwise law-abiding, responsible gun owner who is arrested because he does not have a permit to carry a firearm may apply for individualized consideration for diversion. A defendant charged with marijuana delivery or possession with the intent to deliver may apply for diversion. Further down, increased participation in reentry programs. In general, some effective reentry programs have failed to attract more candidates due to rewards and incentives of the program that are minor compared with the major effort required of reentering Philadelphians. Effective reentry programs prevent crime and should apply to more reentering Philadelphians. ADAs and staff involved in reentry are directed to discuss and formulate suggestions to improve this situation by May 1st. Further down, sentencing, and this is this is where shit gets really fucking radical, uh, and I mean radical in like a legitimately, I've never seen this before in my life, and I think it's totally awesome for reasons that I'll get to in a minute, uh, but it says, at sentencing, state on the record the benefits and costs of the sentence you are recommending. There's a paragraph talking about incarceration and how greatly the incarceration rate has increased over the period of time. The fact that incarceration for low-level offenses tends to create more recidivism, etc., etc. But he continues, in talking about the financial cost to the taxpayer, use the following, $42,000 per year to incarcerate one person, $3,500 per month, or $115 per day. The actual cost including pension and other benefits to correctional employees, health care for incarcerated individuals, etc., is close to 60000 per year to incarcerate just one person in the Philadelphia County prison system. Goes on, facts you should know and consider in making your recommendation. As of March 1st, 2018, Philadelphia County incarcerates approximately 6,000 people at a total annual cost of around $360 million per year. The cost of just one year of unnecessary incarceration at the range of $42,000 to $60,000 is in the range of the cost of one year's salary for a beginning teacher, police officer, firefighter, social worker, assistant district attorney, or addiction counselor. You may use these comparisons on the record. The average family's total income in Philadelphia in 2017 was approximately $41,000, which paid their housing, food, utilities, transportation, clothing, educational expense, and taxes. 
goes on examples of how this information can be used at sentencing. If you are seeking a sentence of three years prison time, state on the record that the cost to the taxpayer will be $126,000, if not more, and explain why you believe that cost is justified. In a very serious matter, where, for example, 25 years incarceration are sought and is appropriate, state on the record that the cost to the taxpayer is $1.05 million, if not more, and explain why you believe that cost is justified. It goes on. Request shorter probation tails, i.e. consecutive periods of probation, or no probation tail after a sentence of incarceration. Explaining criminological studies and the fact that back-to-back probation is just a way to trip people up and get them back in the system. Uh, Let's see. Where else? It goes on. There's other stuff in here, but it's like it's five pages of, one, fantastic recommendations that I am totally on board for, but I have never in my life seen any district attorney anywhere in the country release a document for his subordinates even remotely close to how groundbreaking this stuff is. And I'll tell you, as a conservative, as a guy that cares about taxpayer money, I appreciate the part about explaining to the court when you're seeking to impose a prison sentence how much it's going to cost. Because we've covered on Twitter and in prior podcasts, that shit's fucking expensive. We blow a shitload of money to do absolutely nothing but keep nonviolent offenders locked up in jails and prisons. It ends up taking away from those folks' human capital and their ability to develop into productive taxpayers. It takes away from other people's human capital because we can't adequately fund schools and everything else. It takes away from my tax money for a a purpose that I don't agree with. And if you limited incarceration just to people who had committed violent crimes or had obscenely long records and need to be segmented away from the rest of the population, you would drop the costs like by an insanely huge number. You know, I don't have exact dollar amount to give you. It's it's from a prior study from the Vera Institute, but it's a lot. Like it's a shitload of money that could be saved and redirected elsewhere to more productive uses if we stopped with the over-incarceration bullshit. So kudos to Larry Krasner. I'll be honest, when he got elected, I didn't think he'd live up to the hype, and I'm very impressed with what he's done in the first three months. Uh, Out of South Carolina, where I'm not impressed with what they have done, in Florence, a fake police officer shot a real gun at an unarmed black man for sport during a traffic stop on Saturday night. From the story, it says, quote, Florence Mayor Stephen Wakella said during a press conference Sunday that the volunteer part-time officer and not an accompanying city patrolman fired after a stop that involved some damage to the officer's cruiser. Uh, You know, the volunteer police officers are a fucking joke in their own right. They should not exist. They damn sure shouldn't be armed. The story continues. Wakella said the confrontation happened around 11 p.m. Saturday, but the mayor refused to describe what led up to the traffic stop or the shooting. Uh, We talked about this on Twitter and uh, at Bert Hyman said, quote, he's proven that he's ready to go full time now. She need to do like a rim shot sound effect. Uh, SLED, which is the law enforcement division. I don't know. I don't know what the acronym actually means, but basically they're the people that uh, investigate officer involved shootings. This is the crazy shit. Quote, SLED is also investigating shootings on Thursday involving sheriff's deputies in Kershaw County and U.S. Marshals in Berkeley County. There have been at least a dozen shootings so far this year involving South Carolina law officers. It's like there's a fucking competition to see who can shoot 
shoot the most taxpayers the quickest. Uh, that's out of South Carolina. In Tennessee and Nashville, a former judge is facing new charges. From the story, it says, quote, It's not the crime, but the cover-up, as the famous phrase goes. But nobody seems to pay the warning much heed. According to federal prosecutors, it didn't stop Nashville judge Casey Moreland either. He is now ex-Nashville judge Casey Moreland in jail, awaiting trial on charges of obstruction of justice and embezzlement all connected with his alleged efforts to cover up a sex scandal that threatened to bring him down. The problems for Moreland started last year when Natalie Amos publicly alleged that Moreland helped her wipe away debt she owed from court fines and traffic ticket fees, then pursued a sexual relationship with her. The story's lengthy. It goes on from there. But the gist of it is this woman was pulled over by police, texted the judge mid-traffic stop. The judge called the officer and told him to back off. Uh, He had slept with other defendants repeatedly, including one who eventually committed suicide. That's how he first got found out, because they were going through this woman's cell phone and found texts from him. And when he learned that he was being investigated, he then texted a former girlfriend to ask her to lie and also help him plant drugs on Amos to help discredit her. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Also, not very thought out, frankly, but pretty dumb. So that guy is no longer a judge and in prison. Uh, Also in Tennessee in Wilson County, a man who was wrongly imprisoned 31 years for crimes he didn't commit will receive a million dollars from the state taxpayers for his incarceration. From the story, it says, quote, a Wilson County man who spent 31 years in prison before being cleared of his crimes received one million dollars after a unanimous vote by the Tennessee Board of Claims on Wednesday. Lawrence McKinney. 61, was released from prison in 2009 because new DNA evidence cleared him of a 1978 rape and burglary conviction in Memphis. The award includes $353,000 up front to pay McKinney's attorney's fees, debts, and allow him to purchase a vehicle. The remaining $647,000 will fund a monthly annuity that will pay McKinney $3,350 per month for life beginning May 1st. The monthly payment is guaranteed for at least 10 years. If McKinney dies within that time frame, the balance of the money will be paid to his wife or his estate if she also does not survive. The $1 million award is the maximum amount the Board of Claims was allowed to approve for McKinney. So here's the thing. If you take into account the 31 years this guy was locked up, that means that this payment works out to roughly $32,000 per year for his imprisonment. Now, I don't know what the median earnings is for someone in this country. It's somewhere in the 30,000-ish ballpark range. And it's insane to me that he could have been out on his own making that exact same amount of money while also enjoying his liberty. But we took that away from him in exchange. We're only going to give him 32 grand a year for being locked up. I think that's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. Uh, Speaking of outrageous, in Texas, out of Austin... A sheriff's deputy repeatedly punched a 12-year-old girl with autism in the face at a restaurant because she was petting her own puppy. This is a true story. It says, quote, an off-duty Williamson County deputy attacked a 12-year-old girl at a barbecue restaurant before Austin police arrested him on charges of public intoxication in early March. Deputy Jack Danford was drinking with family on the patio area of the Oakwood Barbecue Restaurant March 3rd, according to an affidavit. Russell Cope was delivering wood to the restaurant around the same time. His girlfriend and her 12-year-old daughter, who has autism, were also there. 
Cope says he brought his puppy and let it run around on the patio. Witnesses said Danford had picked up the dog and pet it, then put it down. When the girl came over to pet the dog, Danford, quote, quickly jumped up from his seat and tackled the victim, adding that he punched her in the face repeatedly. Witnesses tried to pull him off of her, but it didn't work. That's when Cope says he punched Danford in the face twice, stepped back, and kicked him in the head with his steel-toed boot. The girl was taken to the hospital for treatment of abrasions, bruises, and a pulled muscle. She told police she thought she was going to die. A grown-ass man in his 40s with a badge beat the shit out of a 12-year-old girl with autism for petting the girl's own fucking puppy. Everything is dumber in Texas. Uh, out of Houston, an unnamed police officer summarily executed an unarmed black man in the middle of the afternoon in a random Houston street. Says, quote, video obtained by the Houston Chronicle captures the killing of an unarmed man who was shot by Harris County Sheriff's Office deputy in the greater Greens Point area on Thursday. The Houston Police Department confirmed Friday that Danny Ray Thomas, 34, died after the deputy, who has not been named, fired one shot at him around 1 o'clock p.m. Sheriff's Office spokesman Jason Spencer said Thursday that no weapon was recovered at the scene. And what's funny is that it is not funny. I mean, I don't mean funny in the literal sense, but like, you know, it's fucked up. I looked at the video. This guy's got his pants around his fucking ankles. And I, I don't mean that as hyperbole. I mean, his pants are literally around his ankles. He can barely walk. He's obviously having some sort of mental health episode. And you hear the bystanders recording it. They think it's fucking hilarious because the guy's having issues and he can't walk. So they're laughing. They're laughing as they record saying, oh, he's about to get tased. And then you see a van block the video briefly. And while the van is blocking the video... The gunshot rings out, and all of a sudden, they're shocked. They're like, why'd he shoot him? Why'd he shoot him? Good fucking question, because the guy's pants were around his ankles. He didn't have any weapon. If he had one in his pants, how the fuck was he going to reach it? Because the pants are around his ankles. He didn't have anything in his hands. So that is out of Houston. In Lubbock, a 37-year-old woman has had a warrant for her arrest issued for court costs from a shoplifting case when she was 12, 25 years ago. Uh, from Reason Magazine, the story says, quote, When Andra Motzenbacher checked her mail one evening after work in early March, the 37-year-old resident of Lubbock, Texas, was in for something of a shock. She'd received a letter, dated March 2nd, 2018, from the law firm McCreary, Veselga, Bragg, and Allen, saying in bold red letters that there was a warrant out for her arrest for a supposed theft in San Angelo, Texas, and that she could avoid jail if she promptly paid $299 to the firm. Motzenbacher, a working mother who believed herself to be a citizen in good standing, was taken aback. So, quote, I thought, what? I'm not a thief. I haven't stolen anything, she tells Reason. I thought, what the heck is going on? Her first reaction was that it was a scam. Though initially from San Angelo, Matsumbacher has not lived there since she was a teenager. Despite being married for some 17 years, the letter was addressed to her maiden name. She spoke to several friends in law enforcement who agreed with her hunch that the letter was likely a fraud. The following Monday, she called MVBA, who refused to answer her questions, instead directing her to the municipal court in San Angelo. To her surprise, a clerk at the court confirmed that there was a warrant out for Motzenbacher, stemming from an incident all the way back in 1992. The story goes on from there. Uh, look, if someone owes you money and you needed to sue them, 
The statute of limitations to do that in the vast majority of states is three years. If it's a sealed instrument in North Carolina, the longest period of time you can have is 10 years. The government waited 25 years to try and collect money from this woman. It's time to just drop it and let it go. So those stories are out of Texas in Utah in West Valley City. Uh, two parents lost their two-month-old son. And then minutes after getting back from the hospital, they were assaulted by police. From the story, it says, quote, Tevin Evans and Marissa Estrada had been home for less than 10 minutes. The tragic death of their two-month-old son still very fresh on their minds when a West Valley police officer knocked on the door. What followed was a chaotic scene that started with an officer kicking the front door open, three members of the couple's family being handcuffed and pepper sprayed, Evans tumbling down a flight of stairs with West Valley police officer Ben Christensen, and Evans spending the night in the Salt Lake County Jail. The situation in the house became so bad that at least two family members called 911. Story goes on from there. It gets worse. The gist of it is this kid died of natural causes, this two-month-old child. The police said, we just want to ask you some questions. Well, apparently different units of the police didn't bother to talk to each other because these officers that showed up were assuming that the kid had been murdered. And the grandfather opened the door, saw the police officer, said, what the fuck do you want? Slammed the door shut. And that pissed off the officer who kicked the door down for them to come in, threatened to arrest everybody. Then when people pulled out their cell phones, he threatened to arrest the people recording, released his pepper spray, and so on and so forth. Uh, from the story continues, quote, the department has launched an internal investigation into the actions of Christensen, which will also be presented to an independent review board, according to West Valley Police Chief Colleen Jacobs, who said Friday she has, subquote, high expectations of my officers. Based on the body camera video from the officers that she has seen, Jacobs admitted the counter was the encounter was, quote, concerning. What seemed to have been a routine investigation in the video, it was a death investigation, and for it to turn into a use of force, clearly something happened, and we need to find out why it went down that road. No shit. Uh, story wraps up. Earlier this week, West Valley City denied a public records request by the Deseret News to release the police body camera video. Good luck ever having that see the light of day. Uh, so that's the state-by-state state criminal justice fuckery this week. Every now and again, we do cover stories from other countries. In France, this isn't really like – so this isn't bad, but it's also not good per se. Um, it's not criminal justice fuckery in a typical sense. It's actually an officer doing something noble, but he died in the process. Uh, French police officer Arnaud Beltram, and I, I apologize to anyone listening in France. I know I've screwed up that name. Uh, basically, he gave up his life to save a female hostage. In exchange, he was uh, shot and stabbed for it. From the story out of the BBC, it says, quote, The violence began on Friday morning in Carcassonne, where Lockdim, who was the terrorist that was doing this particular thing, uh, hijacked a car. He killed a passenger, whose body was later found hidden in a bush, and injured the driver. He then shot at a group of policemen who were out jogging, wounding one of them. Lockdom is then believed to have driven a short distance to the small town of Trebs, where he stormed into the Super U supermarket, shouting, I am a soldier of Islamic State. He killed two people, 
a customer and a store worker before seizing others as hostages. Police officers had managed to get some people out of the supermarket, but the gunman had held one woman back as a human shield. It was at this point that Colonel Beltram had volunteered to swap himself for her. As he did so, he left his mobile phone on a table with an open line so that police outside could monitor the situation. When police heard gunshots, a tactical team stormed the supermarket. The gunman was killed and Colonel Beltram was mortally wounded. Uh, rest in peace. That was a very noble thing to do. It's the type of thing we expect of people who are protecting and serving the populace. Uh, so, folks, that is the entirety of the criminal justice fuckery for this week, the week of my birth. Uh, thank you so much for listening. On behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a great week. And we will talk to you next Monday when Law 140 will return as well. Take care. <laughs>